I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. At the start of a brand new series, it's a high priority for us at Ave to make sure that we do the 10,000 foot view, big tent picture conversation. What is the mass and why does it matter? Well, those, those two conversations, those questions can be answered only after we've spent a little bit of time looking at the structure of the mass. Perhaps why the liturgy of the word comes first and then followed by the liturgy of the Eucharist. Why when we walk up to receive communion is our posture this or that? Why does the homily need to hopefully be focused on the actual readings of the weekend? The the nitty gritty of what structure of the mass we're dealing with and why ultimately all of that affects the way we pray, influences how we invest in this time of worship. I remember as a kid, when we got to do a, a dry mass with one of the priests at our parish, and all the second graders walked across the street to Our Lady Queen of Heaven, and he basically walked through every single step of the mass and in very seven-year-old friendly language explained to us, this is why I put water into the chalice. This is why we stand when we read the gospel. Here is why we say, go in peace, and, and whatever phrase follows that the deacon or the priest chooses. And, and even as a kid, realizing, oh, this all has meaning, this all matters. I think a lot of us, especially if you're spending some time listening to a series on the Mass, we're curious about that. We want to understand the ins and outs, the history even, how it came to be, why uh, a church father in the second or third century was saying something about the Mass that we're still doing to this day, how the communal component of our worship affects the entire the entire playing out of this holy sacrifice of the Mass. And I, I wanted to sit down with a theologian who spends time thinking about this from both the technical perspective and the pastoral perspective. Dr. Susan Timoney, who is over at the Catholic University of America, was so gracious to give us a little bit of her time to, to talk about what she talks about in her classroom, why theology and pastoral ministry was a desire of hers in the first place, her work in parish ministry, and of course now in the classroom, and ultimately how you and I, when we understand a little bit of the structure and the history and, and the way things are within the Mass, how that affects our worship overall. We're really excited that you're joining us for this series. As it kicks off, just as a reminder, if you click on over to AveMariaPress.com, you'll find all of the stuff that we're creating just for you, completely for free. Sign up for our weekly emails and you won't miss a thing, including our Instagram live conversations, articles, the podcasts, and so much more. But for right now, we want you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Susan Timoney about what is going on in the Mass and how that affects us. Dr. Susan Timoney, thanks so much for joining us on Ave Explores. It is a delight to be here. So longtime fan, first time caller, as we would say in the radio world or in the podcasting world. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what you do. I'd be happy to do that, Katie. Thank you. So I am a associate professor of practice in the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America. And what it means to be a professor of practice is what is called sometimes in professional schools, a clinical professor. I came to full-time teaching after 30 years of pastoral ministry, oh, wow. both in a parish, in a lay formation program, and then 10 years in a leadership position at the Archdiocese of Washington. So was brought on full-time both to teach in the pastoral studies area 
and also to serve as the Dean for Undergraduate Studies in the School of Theology and Religious Studies. So I oversee the undergraduate program. We were looking to be able to prepare our students who are moving into pastoral ministry, as well as we prepare our students to go on to graduate studies, because Catholic University, right, has a huge tradition mm-hmm. in preparing folks to be theologians to serve to serve the church. So I've been a full-time member of the faculty for five years and really love it because I get to teach across all levels of our program. I teach a course called The Church and the Human Person, in which we do a big piece on the liturgy, which is a required course for undergrads. Mm -hmm. I teach in the Master's in Divinity program, the capstone course in pastoral ministry, and that's primarily seminarians and transitional deacons. And then in the doctorate in ministry program, I teach a course on pastoral leadership. So a lot of really interesting conversations, a lot of ability to really have a chance to form people for service in the church, particularly to be effective mm-hmm. pastoral leaders today. That's my passion. Vibrant parishes is, is something that I've committed. Hopefully the best part of my work to, to, to thinking about, to helping pastors and parish leaders mm-hmm. really think about what it means to be participating in the new evangelization. Mm-hmm. Was that always what you wanted to do? Like when you were in undergrad yourself was the thought, okay, one day I want to be the, the practical person behind how this happens. You know what? No. And it's really <laughs> funny because as saying goodbye to so many of our seniors, a number of them are joining the Jesuit volunteer Corps, nice. And that's exactly what I did when I graduated from college. <laughs> and it was there that the doors were open to this idea that as a layperson you could work for the church. Mm. I was always really active, right, in youth group, in campus ministry when I was in college, but honestly had no models of lay people who were doing ministry. Mm-hmm. And so uh, thanks to a wonderful priest with whom I worked in the Diocese of Fairbanks in Alaska when I was a Jesuit volunteer, he said, you know, I think you'd be really good at this. And I thought it was the beginning of a vocations talk. Right? <laughs> thought the only way you could do it is if you were going to be a nun. And he said, absolutely not. He said, there's a place and a need for lay people, but you need to study theology. Mm-hmm. So went back to school, did a master's in, um, in theology. And then that just, I mean, talk about so grateful to the Lord that I was led to the place that I discovered my passion. And then at a time, right, that I had an opportunity and that the church was really open to welcoming women into parish ministry, into pastoral ministry, mm-hmm. the opportunity for leadership. And so just really to flourish. And one thing just led to another, like mm-hmm. I could never have planned it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's such a rich diversity for which I'm really grateful. Yeah. It's so encouraging to know that there is a woman in leadership launching theology students into, you know, whether it's theology students who go off to teach in a high school or work in parish youth ministry or go on to grad school. My my sister's working on her doctorate at CUA right now. So she's part of the rich tradition of graduate work at that university. But that there, sometimes we get this argument. I just had a debate with somebody the other day. They were like, oh, the church silences the voices of women. And I looked at them and I was like, I, I literally work for the church and I talk for two hours every day live. <laughs> like nobody's silencing me. They're actually asking me to say something. So I, I, and, and I don't think that person's entirely wrong to say at times that there have been moments where women are shoved to the side or where their voices don't really matter. That's not what this podcast is about, but I wanted to make sure that you knew I am grateful to know that you're at that, at that moment of leadership and in that position. What, what have you seen 
I don't know, maybe one of the best benefits of the work that you get to do, one of the, the real gifts of being in that position and launching these students out into the world. What, what's one of those gifts that you've been able to see? It's someone related to the comment that you just made. I like to say that I think we don't tell the story of women who have leadership positions mm-hmm. in the church as well as we should. And so what I love most, particularly in working with the undergraduates and even our seminarians and future priests, is this idea that from the beginning, the intention was that clergy and laity would be Mm co-responsible, right? The lay people have, by virtue of baptism, this role and this responsibility to be evangelizers, to Mm -hmm. give witness to the good news, to contribute to the building up of the church. And what we've not done so well is prepare lay people for that responsibility and, and to help them recognize the gifts that they have. So if I can send students out knowing that they've had a chance to understand more deeply the universal call to holiness, Mm -hmm. right, this vocation that comes with baptism, and to find the words and the ability to then talk to others about it, that to me is what's going to create really vibrant communities Mm -hmm. and enable us to do the kind of work that we know that we want to be about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, co-responsible, because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, people might hear it and think, Okay, that means I'm co-responsible for leading a Bible study, which is not entirely untrue, right? Like I, in my own circumstance and situation, yeah, sure, have people over, cook dinner, we can have a Bible study. I don't need anybody's permission to do that. That's just something I could choose to do. But then when we hear the phrase co-responsible, sometimes people just assume that means everything outside of the Mass we're co-responsible for. And that's not true, because like the liturgy is the source and summit of what we're doing. So actually, I'm co-responsible there as well. So let's let's get into that. How is a layperson? We're going to talk about what the mass is in a second, but you said the phrase, right. so I want us to dig into that. How how am I as a layperson, as a mom? How is my husband as a dad? How is the single person? How is the religious sister? How is the priest who's not saying the mass, but maybe just showed up to distribute communion? How are we co-responsible in the context of the liturgy? That is a really great question. And there is, a, I think, a really powerful answer, right? So when we talk about, I think most people who know the Mass know that what happens in the Mass is that we, as Jesus instructed us, right, offer the sacrifice of the bread and wine to become, uh, through God's grace and through the priest's presiding the body and blood of Christ. It makes Jesus present to us. But that's not the only way that Jesus is present in the celebration of the liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus is present in the proclamation of the word. Jesus is present in the person of the priest who acts in persona Christi. And Jesus is present in the community. And so that means that every one of us who come to Mass, who are that community Mm -hmm. around the altar, make Jesus um, present. What I really love, we talk about and this, you know, goes all the way back to the beginning of the liturgy that we give the gift of ourselves mm-hmm. as the gift of the bread and wine are presented. So the, you know, the famous procession of the gifts, which a lot of Catholics like to avoid being chosen for that procession. I'm one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I shrink into the pew if I see the usher coming towards me. Yeah, exactly. We have that procession because the idea is it's it's the bread, it's the wine. Oftentimes it's the monetary contribution we make. But the people presenting those gifts hopefully are presenting them on the behalf of all of us. Mm-hmm. And so we get to come into Mass bringing you know, our gifts, bringing our troubles, bringing those things we're really good at and the community needs, 
bringing our worst, Mm -hmm. you know, ourselves on our worst days, because we know we need to be strengthened by the Eucharist. So to me, that expresses that Mm co-responsibility. And one of the renewal, right, at the Second Vatican Council was this idea of moving away from priests celebrating the Mass in private, Mm-hmm. but to celebrate with a congregation whenever possible, because that's the more full expression mm-hmm. of who we are as a community. Yeah. I was having a discussion just the other day with a friend of mine. He goes primarily to the Latin Mass, a beautiful form of worship. Mm-hmm. And he made the comment that he was grateful for Vatican II because it made daily Mass a priority. And I, I was kind of struck because I've had debates with this person before who has been a little anti-Vatican II for whatever reason. And I was like, oh, so there was benefit from the council. And he said, yeah, because like they told us that we should all be present at mass more frequently. And I said, that's interesting because some of our debates in the past, you told me, oh, we've all lost our reverence. But yet here we are being encouraged to go do the most reverent thing we could, Mm -hmm. which is present our whole selves at the altar, present our whole selves at this table where we're welcomed. You mentioned Jesus instituted this, right? Jesus Christ gave it to us. So brand new baby Catholic, person who's been Catholic for 80 years, whatever whatever phase of life right. you have to be, person who's Catholic adjacent, maybe just curious about what those Catholics do. Okay, Jesus instituted the, the mass? No, he didn't. Jesus like broke some bread and poured some wine. Is that the mass? Tell us a little bit of that. I mean, boilerplate, basic level, what is the mass and why did Jesus create it? Right. No. So you kind of um, had a great lead in a little earlier when you said the mass is the source and summit of the faith, because in fact it is, mm-hmm. right? It's it's the place where we're most fully the Christian community. And it's the place that nourishes us to go out into the world to mm-hmm. do what, what the Lord asks of us to do. I think having this conversation now is so well poised because the Easter readings talk exactly about how we got from Jesus's desire mm-hmm. to celebrate Passover with his apostles. So in that meal that for them grew out of the tradition of talking about the way in which God saved his people, Jesus says, I, I desire to celebrate this meal with you mm-hmm. because what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to ask you to do in memory of me. And so what he's asking them to do is not simply to consecrate the bread and wine so that it becomes the body and blood of Christ, but more to remember and to tell and to enter in once again to the mystery of the way in which we've been saved Mm. through Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, right? He was preparing his apostles to be able to recognize in what was going to unfold Mm -hmm. in the hours to come that it really was the fulfillment of his preaching and teaching, mm-hmm. that, that he was going to be obedient to the Father, to save us from our sins and to give us a way to be able to be nourished by our remembering. Mm-hmm. That's part of what the way in which we think about what the Eucharist means, but more importantly, to gather as a community to, in the Liturgy of the Word, right, tell that story of God's saving plan and that it comes to its fullest expression in and through our ability to take that body and blood and to share it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. None of it is without purpose, right? Like we're not just like, oh yeah, we're just reading this to kill some time or just giving father something to talk about, right? Like these things are all connected together, culminating in it. We, we, We walk through salvation history from the moment father walks down the aisle and mass begins to the second he says, go in peace Right? Like yes. we are walking through our salvation. Mm-hmm. In the earliest mm-hmm. days, right? Jesus establishes all of this and then breaks bread 
after he walks with them to Emmaus and then appears and breathes on the apostles at different moments. And then like, you know, tosses out some bad fish, like all of these moments right. to 2022, the mass has had a bit of a, a crazy journey <laughs> from day one to now walk us through a little bit of that history. Maybe like how, how did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. Crazy would be the word for it. But what I think is really beautiful, we can find it in the catechism and we can also find it if the folks listening uh, pray the daily office. Mm-hmm. Just last week, I want to say we read the account of the early church father, Justin Martyr, who in the year 155 described the way in which the Christians come together to celebrate the Lord's Day to celebrate Sunday. So so what's beautiful in this account is we see so many elements that were unchanging. But but you're right. So the the apostles as we know from the appearances they weren't putting together all the pieces so well, right? right? right. It was not even they were confused and in fact in the very early days after Jesus's death and resurrection the first Christians would go to the temple in the morning to listen to the proclamation Mm -hmm. of the scriptures. And then they would go to someone's home to break bread in memory Mm -hmm. of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine as the Christian community began to grow and as it began to settle in both within the community itself and in the context of the Jewish authority and the Jewish community, that this couldn't continue in in that way, right? There were two very different things Mm -hmm. that, that were happening. So it was then that we began to see what we would now see as the elements of the mass put in place in the early community. And so I just want to summarize what Justin Martyr said on the day of the sun, right? On Sunday, the Christians will gather. The memoirs of the apostles and the writing of the prophets will be proclaimed. He who presides will then admonish and speak to those readings and the way they impact the community today. So there we have the homily. Mm -hmm. Then the community will rise together, offer prayers for ourselves and for all those others, wherever they may be, particularly those in need. So there we have the general intercessions Mm -hmm. that that we know so well. There will be then the exchange of peace. And then the priest will receive the bread and wine. He'll give thanks to God, right? This thanksgiving, another word for Eucharist is this thanksgiving. He'll pray over those gifts. We'll receive communion. And then communion will be reserved for those who were not able to be present. Mm. So that idea of always making sure that those who are sick, those who are homebound, those perhaps, as we learned recently, right, in living through the pandemic, unable to join the community, ought not to be denied communion. And so what we see there, again, you know, the early second century is the structure of of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the great gifts in the church is they've always been very attentive to the fact that there will be a unity and diversity, right? So we know then what grew up around that. Music was added. Um, people would, um, for a long time, right, the Mass was celebrated only in Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the language was a unifying bit within the universal church. And as the community grew, then for sure, there was both the responsibility given to the local bishop to oversee and to make sure, right, that the community was being faithful to the liturgical tradition. Mm-hmm. And we know one of the beauties of what we call the, the old right Mass 
was that it was pretty unchanging <laughs> for a long period of, of time. And so the renewal probably that most people think about is that of the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. when in the mind of John the 23rd and Paul the 6th, there was this decision that we needed to make sure that people understood their invitation, but also their responsibility for full and active participation in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of those infamous changes in some ways, but anybody over the age of 60 talks about and remembers, right? The option to use the vernacular, right? To celebrate the mass in the language of the community. The decision that the priest would face the people Mm -hmm. while he's celebrating the Eucharist. And there we see a bit of a call and response added, right? So this invitation to pray with him, this invitation to pray the Psalms following the first reading, to be able in the Eucharistic prayer to say amen, to share together that that last plea for God's mercy right mm-hmm. before we receive communion. And so I think the idea there was that the community together in a, a sense was celebrating with the priest presiding. Mm-hmm. And then the call at the council too, that we have both a combination, right, of traditional music, but then music that might reflect the local community, the local culture, the local customs. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. an opportunity then to see that some of these elements have been unchanging, but then around that comes the ability for it to really express the life of the community in a a particular way. It's not a textbook, just follow this and see what happens. It's it's very much a, this is a, a living experience with, with real people sitting there who have an opportunity to express, who have an opportunity to sit and just simply be still, who have an opportunity to wrangle a small child or to be annoyed by a small child, right? Like we, we are sitting there not as passive observers, but mm. as full... Uh, years ago, I read an article that um, it was from Life Teen. I mean, I was a, a baby youth minister and it was up on their website that Mass was a, a full contact sport. Like, this is something that I'm supposed to bring. And I've never forgotten that imagery because it was just like, yeah, like, it's like football. I can't just stand on the sidelines. Like, I need to go jump in all the way and, and every part of me will be touched by this. What I love is, you know, you, you read to us from Justin Martyr, an early church father, like the one of the earliest who tells us, like, this is the structure. And even with the variations that have occurred, even with the development of the council and, and what we have now and and even some of the the going back to what we had once before, we're still holding on to those key components. There's a liturgy of the word, there's a liturgy of the Eucharist, the people are gathered together. Everything else is just extra things for us to kind of fight about. Like at the basis of it, we get to hear God's word and we get to receive God's flesh. And that's enough. Yes, I I think that's absolutely right. And I would add to that the reminder at the end of the mass, right, mm-hmm. that we're sent to yeah. go bring Jesus to the world. That I think that is sometimes the closing hymn, people think, okay, we're done. We've, we've been to mass and we're done. It's like, no, we're just beginning. Mm-hmm. We actually have been to mass to be nourished and prepared in the word, in the homily, in those general intercessions, when we keep in mind people yeah. who are most in need, and then we're called to go mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and to bear Christ, to bring Christ to others. And and so I think that mission element mm-hmm. is really important to help people remember and keep in mind that they're just not going to be fed, mm-hmm. but they're going to be fed so that they can then carry on yeah. the work that's been entrusted to them. 
I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Susan Timoney about the structure of the Mass. I want to take a quick moment and tell you about one of our sponsors for this Ave Explorer season, Catholic Gift Box. You know, every single one of us from time to time, we struggle to find the perfect religious gift. And the answer to that struggle is Catholic Gift Box. Alice Kemmer has designed a large variety of gift box aimed to inspire and build faith in the many Catholic devotions available to us. They offer numerous gift boxes to help you build and strengthen your faith, filled with Catholic devotions with a spiritual theme. Each one, each of the boxes is based on a a specific theme or or maybe a big event like Holy Communion or coming back to Catholicism, the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So many different things available, including, and I love these, the Children's Activity Boxes, awesome inspiring lessons for various age groups. You can check them out at catholicgiftbox.com and their Facebook page of the same name to place your order today. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Susan Timoney. There seems to be this this continued resurgence of, oh, no, 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 I have to go to the church. That's where all things exist. That's where all life is found. That's where, like, I need to go lock myself into that community as opposed to realizing, no, no, that community is supposed to form me to then go well beyond the parish address and to enter back into my workplace, to enter back into my neighborhood, to enter, yes, all things flow from there and maybe flow back to there, but I can't just go lock myself away there. Why, why do you think we've hit that moment? Is it just the breaking point that we're at in culture? It kind of feels like we're at a boiling point. Is it because people just like to argue about this kind of thing? Is it because people feel like they need to find something stable to hold on to in a very unstable world? What, why, why do you think that we forget that mission component to mass so easily? I think one, because it took, in a sense, the renewal of the fathers at the Second Vatican Council, the reflection of Pope John Paul II in his letter on Sunday, to remind us, again, of what it means to be full and active participants, and in a sense, what it means to be co-responsible, that we, like the first disciples, right, if we're a follower of Jesus, then we need to be Christ bearers. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk about Mary as the perfect disciple, right, because she bore Christ to the world. But I think one of the things I've always found fascinating, so many people want the church to change in so many ways, but holy cow, if you change the statues inside the church where they go to mass on Sunday, oh no, don't Mm -hmm. do that. So I think there's something about church is the place where they can feel safe that as crazy as the world is, Mm -hmm. this doesn't change. And I think the this in their minds, right, is that ability to be with the Lord, Mm -hmm. that ability to receive the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. that sense that we do believe, right, that God's in charge. Yeah, safety. (laughs) You know, and and that what he has promised us. So I think there's a a sense of security Mm -hmm. that's, that's very important. And I think that idea of being surrounded by people who believe what you believe is also a source of strength for people. And so in some ways, I mean, we may have disagreements within the community, but if you've come to mass on Sunday, you pretty much believe in in those things that are most important. So I think we can focus there and focus on the, the beauty and the peace we feel in that time with God and forget, right, that there are so many ways that we bear Christ to to the world. And, and that's what we depend on, right? That we The idea is to be able to go out and to invite people to come and see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was working in the Archdiocese of Washington and we were thinking about an evangelization initiative, 
one of the questions that came up in the planning phase was, were we going to close churches? And I remember the archbishop saying, you know, we have a lot of people who need the Lord and we have a lot of churches that have room. And so we're not going to close the doors. We're actually going to go and invite Mm -hmm. those people who we know lives would be enriched by Mm -hmm. knowing the Lord Mm -hmm. to come and to see. And I think that's exactly what we need to keep in mind, right? And I also think certainly for the generation that lived through the changes of in the liturgy at the Second Vatican Council, it was a very personal and private experience in some ways. Like often you would hear people say, well, I prayed the rosary because I didn't understand the Latin Mm -hmm. and the bells rang and I knew that was the consecration. And so then I might, you know, put the rosary aside and enter Mm -hmm. into this in preparation to receive. But I do think there's a little bit of that kind of leftover as well. This idea that it's, it's about me and the Lord. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about me and the community. Yeah. I had a conversation, my husband's grandfather who recently passed away a couple of years ago he called me you know visiting for the holidays he called yeah. me over and he wanted to sh- he wanted to show me his missile from pre-1962 oh, like nice. this was from like the 50s yeah. and, and this was a man who you know had had faithful catholic brother priest you know like he was he was about as catholic as they come old polish catholic and he wanted to show me all of the holy cards that he had shoved into his oh, missile gosh. And yeah. so I asked him, you know, as somebody very interested interested in this kind of thing, you know, like, Dadju, what would you do during mass? And he's like, well, when I wasn't trying to wrangle my children, because even I feel like that's a universal experience that all parents have had since the earliest days. Like, even, right? even in the second century, yeah. I'm sure they were wrangling little kids to be still. Why have children never learned how to go to right, mass? Exactly, right, exactly, right? Because they're kids and we can't just turn it off. And, and that's fine. Like, bring your whole self, the stressed mom and the wiggly two-year-old. But he then showed me, like, his favorite route of holy cards like the order that he would use them in like a deck of cards and i was i was so i was inspired by this man's deep devotion Mm -hmm. and then at the same time also thought i wonder what it was like the first time he maybe went to mass after vatican ii and all of a sudden had to say things back (laughs) and like no sorry you can't just pray that prayer like there's a there's a line like you are part of the theater of this now and and you need to you need to be fully invested in what that must have been like and him and he's continued to go to church he continued to go to the novus ordo like he he did not stay mm-hmm. where he was by any means he moved with the church but i have noticed i want to give credit to to some latin mass communities that i know we we have a, an ickasp chapel in my diocese this attitude of oh no i just show up and i do what's expected of me and then i leave and it's just me and jesus like there is this amazing community component, like this recognition of like, I am here with these people and we're doing this thing together. And, and I, I want to give credit to that because I do think that that's something that the council brought to life in the Novus Ordo and the Extraordinary Forum, this, this recognition of the mass is something that we do, not father, not me, mm-hmm. separate, but that we as the body mm-hmm. of Christ and the hand and the foot, everybody's connected I just, I wish that we did a better job of articulating that to one another. Do do you wish the same thing at times? Oh, I do. Absolutely. Because like you, I think it's not fair to say that people didn't sense that they were coming as a community to go to mass together. I think what's interesting is in this day and age, I think the the reverence and the sense of transcendence Mm -hmm. that can be experienced sometimes, it it seems easier to enter into Mm -hmm then perhaps the call and response and the addition of music and just larger mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. and seemingly lots more going right, on, right? right? And, and there may be a different understanding of reverence. So I, I think that it wasn't so much that people didn't 
recognize the beauty mm-hmm. of being there together and praying together as a community, but the emphasis of the way in which we're called to participate mm-hmm. is what has changed. Yeah, and yeah. so the the being able to participate through verbal responses, right, it hopefully augments the listening that we've always done, right. Right. To the word of God being proclaimed, to the homily being preached. Yeah. Yeah. To the music, right, being sung. Right. Absolutely. Like, for uh, sure. Our, yeah. um, our pastor recently announced, almost to the embarrassment, I think, of some of the, the choir people, he was like, I have given them a list of hymns they're not allowed to use because it's in a register that nobody's voice can get to. So nobody's right. singing. So, yes, right. we're getting this beautiful performance, but like nobody in the pews are participating. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem because yes. it's not a concert, right? The same way right. that like some of the Latin hymns of old, you just, they were repetitive chants because everybody learned them. I mean, there's there's something really beautiful about going anywhere in the world and the mass parts are going to sound a certain way, about singing the Gloria yes. in a certain way and, and not getting. So, it's there's value to the fact that as a community we gather. Jesus obviously intended it that way. You're on a college campus right next to the Basilica, right? Like you you have a plethora of mass that you get to go through. The Dominican house is right across the street. It's little Rome where you are. My sister lives right Absolutely. across the street and she frequently reminds me there's no shortage of opportunities to go worship with somebody holy. I specifically want to ask with college students, with grad students, with with doctoral candidates, with seminarians, what what's one of the ways that you try to impress upon them in your work as a professor? That the mass is that source and summit. It's not this ancillary thing that we do, but it is the primary focus and everything flows from and really flows back to that. How how are you able to articulate that? And then what do you see happen in their lives as they start to realize that? Right. So I would say for me, and I think this is probably coming a lot from my own experience and particularly working on parish staffs for so long, Mm -hmm. is this importance of gathering as a community. Right, this importance of coming together as the people of God to do that which Jesus asked us to do, to be to be formed as disciples, mm-hmm. as followers of Him. And also to have that sense that what we celebrate together on earth is being celebrated in heaven. Mm. And so one of the best ways that we can be present, right? And and feel the presence of our loved ones who have died is to go to the Eucharist. Yeah. And so using that idea of this idea of community, the the life that can be found in community, the support, and again, coming out of the pandemic, you have such a golden moment because we lost that ability mm-hmm. for a while. And so to tap in to the loneliness that people felt or the isolation that people felt and to say, hey, here's this great gift mm-hmm. that's given to us in and through the Eucharist, both daily and the and the Sunday Eucharist. And, and so I like to use that as the starting point. And then to be able to, again, make real this idea that to come together, to listen to the scriptures, to come together, to reflect with the priest, to think along with the priest in the homily, to remember the needs most pressing of the community, these are beautiful ways, right, Mm -hmm. to experience solidarity and to think about, okay, what does it mean to be a disciple? How can I go out into the world and be a faithful follower of Christ? That we need to be reminded of that and we need to be nourished in that. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that that at least helps them to begin to think about why it is then, why it ought to be a priority. And certainly, Catholic, I often say to the students, you have to work harder not to go to Mass than you do to go to Mass. In D.C., for sure, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, we're really blessed in that way, right, mm-hmm. and ought not to take that for granted. 
But I think the other thing too that's important is to help them have a practice of prayer outside of mass. Mm, mm-hmm. Because if if they have a lively prayer life, then that is going to lead them yeah. to to encounter the Lord in the in the Eucharist as well. Yeah. So I think that that piece is important. And I also find that our college students today really love the experience of adoration. Yeah. So I give in my Vatican II class, I give an assignment in which if they're Catholic, they have to go to a kind of liturgy or prayer that they've not experienced before. And if they're not Catholic, to go to a Catholic mass and then to look at it in light of what we learned Mm -hmm. in uh, readings, Sacrosanctum Concilium. And so one of the young men wrote that he had pretty much given up going to mass because he didn't find it helpful. He felt like he was distracted most of the time. He wanted a better sense of intimacy. So he decided for his assignment, he was going to go to adoration, which he had never done before. And he said, I couldn't believe the way in which I experienced Mm -hmm. the presence of the Lord, the way in which I was able to pray more deeply, just the sense of peace that I found. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, gosh, if that's what he can do now (laughs) to continue to do that, right. will will lead him back to the Eucharist. And so I think taking advantage of even having them spend some time just sitting in the beauty and quiet of the church. Yeah. That's such a great, Um, great point. Yeah. And there's a hunger Mm -hmm. right now in this generation for that. Right. I mean, there was a generation following the council that I think was somewhat happy to be relieved of what they thought was a duty to have to go to adoration. Mm -hmm. But you see now that this idea of contemplation, this idea of beauty and silence is people are hungering for oh, that. Yeah. And oh, yeah. we have the opportunity, right, to to introduce them yeah. to that. And I also think we're really blessed with the diversity of ways in which the liturgy is celebrated. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you take the time to visit a couple of different communities mm-hmm. and parishes and find that style of music that helps you to pray or the style of preaching that really brings alive for you, the word of God, we, goodness, you, I think it's easier today to find a community and a way in which the mass is celebrated that really brings you alive. Yeah, that speaks to and, you. Yeah. and so to encourage people to at least give themselves the opportunity and even the responsibility, right, to, to say, well, I don't like the mass at the church closest to me, so I guess I'm just not going to go. Yeah, well, yeah. for most of us, again, in most places, in the country, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you've got options. It's an, em- so it's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, it truly is at, yes, at different times. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We've concluded yeah. every podcast by asking our guests, and then you're very early in the season, so we've got lots of answers to come, but you walk into okay. Mass on Sunday, your favorite part, as you're worshiping in that 60 to 90 minutes, you know, depending on Father's mood that day for the homily, 60 to 90 minutes, you get with Jesus in this concentrated way with this community. What What is your favorite part of the Mass? You know what? My favorite part of the Mass is when I say amen, when the priest says, or the Eucharistic minister, the body of Christ. Oh, wow. Because that amen is really important, right? It says that we are giving our assent mm-hmm. to all that's been celebrated and to the, you know, the truth yeah. that this is the body of Christ that I'm about to receive. And I think it's important, too, because it's also the heart of why we can't invite others who aren't Catholic mm-hmm. to receive the Eucharist yeah. because we ought not to ask someone to give assent to something that they don't understand right, right. Or, or believe in. Right. And so it, that knowledge makes my amen all the more mm. powerful and mm-hmm. that reminder that this is it. 
Yeah. This, this, this is everything. Yeah. And so that's that's my favorite part. That's a good answer. That No one's done that one yet of all the interviews <laughs> okay. so far. So yeah, uh, I'm telling you, the Holy right, Spirit has just given us every part of the Mass to they, give people the chance to, to truly, I think, see the beauty of it. Susan, where yeah. can we follow you on social media, read the things that you have written, learn more about the great work you do? Well, goodness. Um, thanks for asking. So I'm on Twitter at SMTimony. And I'm on Instagram at the Marketplace Mystic, where I try to help people think about how we find the Lord in the midst of the world, in, <laughs> in the marketplace, so to I speak. So I do a little reflecting there. And, and so they're the two places Great. to find me and to follow me. Yeah. I'm very interested. We'll put your links down in the show notes for sure. Thanks so much for taking the time. I Great. really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the conversation, Katie. One of the things I was really grateful for in this conversation with Susan was really thinking about the words of the early church fathers, of some of the earliest theologians who would have spent a lot of time thinking about the particulars of the way we worship when it was brand new. And now here we are, literally 2,000 years later, and we're still thinking about the ins and outs of that and and recognizing this, this through line. Right, this golden thread of continuity. I think there's a lot of beauty in that. That when I step into Mass on Sunday, when you step into Mass on Sunday, we're not just walking into some willy-nilly, oh, this feels good worship service. But we're stepping kind of outside of time for a moment and entering into this historically rich and theologically beautiful, truly life-changing few moments, 90 minutes max most of the time. And really entering into this this moment where heaven meets earth. And in a profound way, watching that transform us, watching it transform our families, knowing that it it kind of gives us this solid foundation upon which to stand. There's a, a phrase that you might have heard it before. I say it to a friend of mine all the time who's a religious sister. On the rare occasion that we get to chat on the phone or, or write letters back and forth, we always include the line, I'll see you in the Eucharist. Because when she goes to Mass, when I go to Mass, we're experiencing much the same thing. And how the history of that, which Dr. Timoney so beautifully explained to us, and the structure of that, is unifying, is universal. As we continue to dig into our series on the Mass, we've got so many amazing conversations. Up next this week, we have Dr. Tim O'Malley, a dear friend of mine, talking about the, the life of the parish and especially giving us a bit of an understanding of the project of the USCCB, that's the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and their Eucharistic Revival, which is ongoing right now, why that is such an important project, what the goal of it is to ultimately, I think, inspire us to all return back to the Mass with more fervor and desire to worship in beautiful ways. All of our conversations this season are linked together in a variety of different ways, so many beautiful opportunities for reflection. I hope that you sign up at our Ave Maria Press website for all of the emails. You don't want to miss anything, including our Instagram live conversations with church musicians, with moms, with priests, with dads, with with so many great folks who want to share their hearts with us. So we hope that you find all of it over at our website, AveMariaPress.com. You won't miss anything if you sign up for our emails there. We'll be back in a couple of days with a new episode with Dr. Tim O'Malley. So make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and you won't miss it. It'll pop up into your feed. We want to continue walking on this journey with you. We're so grateful that you listened today. We'll be back soon with a whole lot more. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.